Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. We're going to have Brian come up for the scripture reading. You can open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. The fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Then... uh, and Moses called Mashal, Masala, and uh, Elsaphan, the sons of Uriel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp. As Moses had said, and Moses said to Aaron and to uh, Elzazar and uh, Tamar, his sons, do not let the hair of your heads hang loose and do not tear your clothes, lest you die. The wrath come upon all the congregation, but let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, Bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled, and do not go outside the entrance of the tent of the meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the words of Moses. And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you, your sons, with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die, it shall be the statute forever among your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has uh, spoken to, to them by Moses. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 11. Thank you, Brian. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much for your word and that through your word you have made yourself known to us, that you have chosen to reveal yourself in this way. Um, help us to, to keep this in mind as we, uh, as, we, as we study your word today and are focused on what you have told us to do in worship. 
Um, we are thankful for you and all that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a couple of years ago, I was trying to plan Heidi's birthday. Now, as her husband, I thought that I had a lot of fun ideas. And honestly, I thought they were pretty great. First, I thought maybe we could have a really good day of playing video games together. (laughs) Then maybe we could go somewhere and pet golden retriever puppies. Oh, oh, or maybe we would pull out my ham radio equipment and talk to some people. And then I thought, I know what would be perfect. We will get a gift basket of some fine European cheeses. Now, these ideas I thought were brilliant. Um, but they were brilliant if it was my own birthday, which, to be fair, is only eight days later. So I wasn't too far off. But these are not exactly the things that Heidi would enjoy. If I think about Heidi, she's played video games once or twice in her entire life. She doesn't really care for pets, even puppies, much to my dismay. And she doesn't even have an amateur radio license, so she couldn't talk on the air if she wanted to. And finally, she doesn't like cheese, unless it's on pizza, because, and I quote, I'm American. In the end, I settled on taking her to the Mall of America, where she'd get the check off, another state on her list, Minnesota, which she loves to do. Uh, It'd be a mini vacation, which she loves, and it would give her the opportunity to shop, which, as you can probably guess, she loves. This was the kind of gift that she had been asking for, and it made her feel like I really knew her and loved her. My original ideas for her We're really trying to give myself a gift. I wasn't trying to do something to make my wife happy, but I was trying to do things that made myself happy. My question is, have you ever given a gift like that? Or maybe have you ever received a gift like that? As you contemplate that for a moment, I want us to take a look back at that text that Brian read for us this morning and In Leviticus 10. We're just going to look at the first three verses here, really. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. So what exactly is it that Nadab and Abihu had done that caused the Lord to consume them in fire? They had made the decision to worship the Lord in a way that he had not commanded them to do so. Like everything, there is a theological term for this because we like to make up words that are long and impressive. Um, Theologians call this the regulative principle of worship. Uh, The regulative principle of worship affirms as that we are supposed to worship the Lord only in the ways in which he has commanded us to do so. In contrast, theologians have also come up with 
the other side, because there's always an argument, and that's called the normative principle of worship, which is the idea that we can worship the Lord in any way that he hasn't strictly prohibited us from. Theologians debate which one of these is right. Today, I'm going to give you an argument from the perspective of the regulative principle of worship. So in this passage, we're told that Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are consumed and killed because they offered unauthorized fire to the Lord. Essentially, what they're doing is they're doing something that they think is acceptable for worship, but it's outside of the bounds of what the Lord has commanded them to do. Right? And the Lord states, he will not allow his holiness to be violated, not even by members of Aaron, the high priest's family. And this isn't the only time in scripture we see something like this. We can think back to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where they sell their property and their land to give to the church, but they hold some back, keeping that a secret. And so they are also killed for this. Or if we look at Genesis 4 and we think about Cain and Abel, they both give sacrifices to the Lord, but only Abel's is pleasing to the Lord. We're not told exactly what they give, but my thought is that Abel gave something that the Lord actually wanted, like, in Heidi's case, a trip to the Mall of America, and not find cheeses that he didn't want. Uh, or we can think back to Exodus 32, where Aaron creates a golden calf, or we can think the first Samuel chapter two, when the sons of Eli are eating the meat that's been sacrificed before uh, it's been fully cooked. Or we can look at Matthew 15 and think of Jesus rejecting the ways that the Pharisees were worshiping at the time. And then throughout the epistles, we see the apostle Paul call out errant worship practices of the Corinthians and the Colossians. And he calls it self-made religion, or as the King James puts it, will worship, right? that they are worshiping in the way that they will and not in the way that the Lord wills. And so we don't even get a few years into the era after Christ's ascension before the apostles are already having to put regulations around the way this new church is worshiping. So what I see in Scripture is that the Lord has been very specific about how we worship Him. Similarly, Heidi was pretty specific that video games, pets, ham radio, and cheese were not the way she wanted to be loved. Right, if we want to give a pleasing offering to the Lord, we should listen to Him about how He wants to be worshipped. So with this in mind, let's look at six ways that the Lord has commanded for us to worship. I'm going to go ahead and apologize, Joyce, in the booth, um, that it's been a while since I got then since I preached, so I forgot the remote today. So if you can click slides for me, that would be 10 out of 10. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, so our first one is that we are to read the word. If you can click to the next slide, sorry. Uh, and so we're going to be, because this is more of a topical message, right, we're not just going to stick in this Leviticus passage. We're going to be reading throughout Scripture today. If you want to open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll have a few readings in this area, so keeping a, a thumb in that page as we go on might be beneficial to you. Now, if we look at verse 13 in 1 Timothy 4, 
Paul writes to his young protege, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Thank you, Heidi. All right, here at Grace Point, if you've been here for a while, you've probably noticed we make it a point to have a public reading of Scripture before the sermon begins. Um, you might have wondered, why is that? You might have been like me and not even noticed that something like that happens, except that it does happen. Um, and you might wonder, why has this been commanded in Scripture? I'm just going to be honest. Right? While we should all be reading our Bibles at home and becoming familiar with it, many of us, maybe most of us, don't do so. Beyond that, right, everything that Don and I say from the pulpit is not infallible and is not inerrant. Right? The Bible is these things. Scripture is not, it does not include errors, and it's incapable of having errors. Unfortunately, Don and I both have the ability to be wrong. And I know I'm not bursting his bubble when I say that there are things that we are wrong on. <laughs> but the word of the Lord is not wrong, right? It does not have errors. So for some, and maybe even the majority, right, this time of the publicly reading the word together in corporate worship may be the only time many people ever actually hear the word of the Lord. And we continue to think through, God has made it a point to reveal himself to us through Scripture. He has revealed himself in nature, or what we call natural revelation, but we learn a lot more of the specific details about God and the way he chooses uh, to do things through uh, special revelation in Scripture. All right, without Scripture, how would we know that Jesus is God? How would we know that he took on flesh, that he was the perfect sacrifice, that he bore the sins of those who believe in him on the cross, and that he died and rose again three days later, attaining victory over both sin and death? How else would we learn that faith in Jesus is the only way to the Father? Or that faith at all, rather than works, like all other religion state, is what it takes to be saved. Right? We learn this because it has been written down for us to read. Right? Our doctrines come from Scripture. And it's only through reading and knowing Scripture that we are able to know how God wants to be worshipped. And with this knowledge that comes from Scripture, we're then able to do the second thing that Scripture commands us to do in our corporate worship, which is not to skip uh, points, but to preach the Word. If you still have your finger in First Timothy there, skip a couple of pages over to Second Timothy, and we'll be in chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 2 here. Paul tells young Timothy to preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul's words to Timothy are to preach the word, which if we don't know it from having read it, we can't do. Um, 
He also commands them to always be ready to preach at all times. And then he clarifies for us what is the purpose of that preaching, and it is to reprove, to rebuke, and to exhort one another. Right? In our messages from the pulpit, we are to call out sin, and we are to encourage one another in Christ. And this is why we gather as believers together in church on Sunday, so that we have that accountability with one another, and so that we're able to share in our Christian testimony together to encourage each other and to continue to persevere even in the midst of persecution so that we can continue to run the race with endurance as Christ has called us. And so then our highest priority should be to preach the gospel. For Paul wrote to the Romans, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, the words of Scripture. Because as we read that Scripture aloud and we preach it, right, the word of the Lord does not return void. So how are we sharing Christ with each other, with our children, with our coworkers, with our friends, our families, if we aren't preaching the word to them? Right? Part of Don and I's preaching from up here is so that lost souls are able to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But that is not the only purpose in our preaching. It is also to equip you to go out and share the gospel with those in your circle. Because it's not just our job to preach the word. We're supposed to do it here for you to equip you. But you all have a much wider reach in the world than we have alone. You are called also to go out and to make disciples. As Jesus told the disciples in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Which perfectly brings about the next thing that we should do in our worship, which is to practice the ordinances. Right, as we go out and we make disciples, whether they heard the word here, they heard the gospel here, or they heard it from you out in the world, right, part of our part is the next step in making that disciple is to baptize them, right, because Christ has instituted this for us. Right, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, We don't have new people coming to Christ every week here that we are performing baptisms on a a weekly basis. Um, But if we're able to go out and preach the word in Cass County, maybe a revival like that can happen where we can't even put the baptistry away. Um, But when we do celebrate baptism... We are remembering how the Holy Spirit regenerates hearts. We're remembering how Christ died for our sins and how he rose from the grave victorious to earn salvation and the eternal life that comes only through our faith in Christ. Now, church, 
If you truly believe that Christ is Savior, that he is the only way to salvation, and that he bore the wrath of God on the cross for your sins, and you have not been baptized yet, I would encourage you, please, today, speak to Don, speak to myself, speak to any of our elders here, and pursue that baptism today. We've been given these ordinances because they not only edify ourselves as we partake, but it edifies all of those around us as we celebrate them together. So I, I beg you, I ask you, please do not forsake the command of Christ to repent and to be baptized any longer than you need to. Right? And if you've been here for a while and you have any pattern recognition, unlike myself, you might have realized that the first week of every month we also partake in the other ordinances, ordinance, the Lord's Supper. And I wonder why. Right. Once again, Christ has commanded for us to partake in the Lord's Supper in remembrance from him. As you'll hear Don read each month from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, if you want to read along, right, Paul tells the Corinthians, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Right, the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper represent Christ's body and blood that has been beaten, pierced, and poured out for our sins. And every time we partake, we should be reminded of the price that had to be paid to atone for our sins. And we do this as a public act to remind each other of these truths, but also as a symbol of our faith in Christ, which is why Paul will follow this passage up with a warning against partaking for those who are not believers in Christ Jesus, right? Together, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are announcing that this is what we truly believe in. So I'd like to encourage you, the next time you celebrate communion together, continue to reflect on your own need for Jesus as you take it, but also look around to those others who are publicly announcing their faith in Christ Jesus as they partake of the elements as well. Because these ordinances are public celebrations of the gospel changing lives and remembering exactly what Christ Jesus has done for us. But we've also been told to pray together. Um, If you still have your thumb in the first, second Timothy area, I have good news for you. We're back. Um, If you want to look at first Timothy chapter two, we'll look at verse eight. And then I'll also go straight into James 516. So if you're a little bit slower, you might want to jump to James. It'll just be a little bit after Timothy anyways. 
Paul says to Timothy, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And then James, the brother of Jesus, also writes, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Right? It's good and edifying for us to pray together. This is why we do it multiple times throughout our worship service on Sundays. Right? It is good for us to hear each other's voices lifted up to God and to hear each other share praises of how God is working in our lives, sharing thanksgivings of things that we've done, requests that we need, our adoration for God, and the things we're struggling with. Through this prayer, we are able to know each other's hearts through these acts. And that includes whether they're spontaneous prayers or pre-written prayers or even the prayers that Christ has taught us to pray. Now, with this in mind, I would like to ask you to please take a moment and to join me in reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Um, I'll put it on the screen for you. Um, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, I don't want you to be mistaken. The Lord's Prayer is not a magical prayer for us. It doesn't confer some special blessing that other prayers lack but it is simply a template that Christ has given us to teach us how to pray, right? What elements should be included in our prayer? Um, So as, as we pray, we should be looking to recognize God as holy, as this first line does, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or holy be thy name. We should be asking for God's will to be done rather than our own. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're also asking for him to continue that transformative process of our world to be more like his in heaven is. For him to continue to supply for us our daily needs as he did the manna for the Israelites in the desert give us this day our daily bread, that we should continue to repent of our sins and also grant forgiveness to those who have sinned against us because we have sinned worse against an infinitely holy God, right? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or maybe you're someone who prefers trespasses, but you're wrong. Sorry. (laughs) Not really. It's okay. Um, or we should be asking to uh, protect us from the temptation to sin and for his deliverance from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then finally, 
recognizing that he is the one who is sovereign over all, that he deserves all glory, that he has all the power, and while everything on earth belongs to him. Right? That's our last line, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So while we don't need to recite the Lord's Prayer, it is helpful and beneficial to us as it is Scripture, and it does remind us of how we ought to pray. And then we're brought to our fifth thing that the Lord has taught us to do, to worship Him, and that is to give tithes and offerings. If you want to skip to Paul's letter, second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all time, you may abound in every good work. So why are we supposed to give offerings? We have to keep in our minds that God is the one who is sovereign over every single thing. That necessarily includes how much money we make. Right, if it weren't for his divine decree, we wouldn't make any money to begin with. Right, remember, he is the one that controls the rain, the sun, the soil, the crops, the prices those crops sell for. He's the one who controls the economy, the job market, our wages. Right? So we should be thankful that he has decided to bless us in this way, no matter how much or how little he has given us in this way. Because in the end, it doesn't belong to us anyways, right? We won't be taking it with us when we die. And we aren't to give reluctantly or out of a requirement, but we should give because he has given it to us to begin with. And when we feel reluctant to give, I find it helpful to remember how the early church gave. Um, If you want to look at Acts chapter 4, and then I'll also be looking at chapter 5 shortly afterwards. So Acts 4, 33 to 35, Luke tells us, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. The early church was selling all that they owned to give. And they were doing this in a time and a place that was far less comfortable and cozy than the world we currently live in. And not only were they giving of their possessions, they had to give of far more than just that. If you'll just look at the next chapter in Acts 5, starting at verse 40, we'll read, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak 
in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So not only was the early church ready to sell all that they had financially, they were also rejoicing that they were even counted worthy to be persecuted because of the name of Jesus. Yet through all of this, they wouldn't stop teaching and preaching the gospel, even though it would cost them their lives. Simply, most of us won't preach the gospel to the lost because it makes us feel uncomfortable. And we don't give at times because we covet our own money. But we need to look at how it was thought of by the early church. Right? Why shouldn't we be doing more when we're not also having to give of our lives to do anything at all? And I'll bring me to the last point, which is probably what most of us think of when we think of the word worship, and that is that we are to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul writes to the, to the Colossians in Colossians 3, verse 16. Lots of books with a, with a good 316 in them. Colossians is one of them. Paul writes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. As this is the most publicly visible part of my job here at Grace Point, but I'd like to focus most of my attention on this point. So if I've been long-winded already, I apologize. This will be the most long-winded part. Um, my question is, what is our overall purpose of our singing? And Paul makes it clear here, it is to admonish one another and to teach one another. And we accomplish this through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And this is quite an effective tool for us because we know that teaching songs helps us to remember things we would otherwise easily forget. Who still remembers the quadratic formula? For me personally, I still remember it, even though I haven't used it in forever. X equals the opposite of B plus or minus the square root of B squared minus 4AC all over 2A. (laughs) Now, have I used the quadratic formula since I was a freshman in high school taking Algebra 1? No, not a single time. Does this song still take up valuable headspace that could be served by something far better? You bet. Like even memorizing the verse that goes to this. But that's not the case. This song is forever ingrained in my head, or at least after 19 years it still is, and I'm ready for it to be gone. (laughs) Similarly, in the Coptic church, their priests sing scripture. Right? They have songs for all of Scripture. And so, generally, if they can remember the tune, they can start to remember the verses that go along to it. And this is why what we sing 
matters, right? It matters that our songs are steeped in scripture and accurate in its theology. Because I'm gonna be honest, you're more likely to leave service today with one of the songs that we're singing stuck in your head. And if that's the case, I desperately hope it was not the quadratic formula than anything that I'm going to personally say from here right now. Right? And this is why Paul tells us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And many of us are old enough to remember the worship wars when contemporary music and traditional worship were battling for a place in the church, where some thought a drum set was the devil, and others thought an organ was out of touch and couldn't reach a new generation. I just want to make it clear, the language here should officially put an end to the debate as we discuss what are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I'm sure if I, gave, if I gave you guys a test of what these were and I asked you what are psalms, you'd probably all get it. It's pretty clear. The psalms are the book of psalms. Um, straight scripture. But what are hymns? All right, we think of hymns and we're thinking, it is well, come thou fount, um, how great thou art. But, and these are, probably do fall into this category of hymns, but it's, it's not because we have called them that, right? Because no believer in the first century ever sang a mighty fortress is our God, right? Luther would write that 1,500 years later. Our current definition of hymns would be anachronistic to Paul. Hymns were structured songs, songs meant to praise God that have clear references to Scripture in them, right? But unlike Psalms, they're not a direct quotation of Scripture. So really, in the case of many of the songs that we sing, right, both hymns and contemporary Almost all of that can fall into the category of hymns. So I have good news for you. We don't need to destroy organs. We don't have to light electric guitars on fire. Right. But the question that next comes is, what are spiritual songs? And these, similar to hymns, direct our praise towards God, but they aren't necessarily making clear and obvious references to Scripture. Right? They still have some basis in Scripture because they still need to be theologically accurate. But it's not going to be as clear as a reference. So it's, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to make a clear delineation here. Um, but if you can think back to the music we sang this morning, our opening song was Battle Belongs. Um, and it clearly finds its root in what Scripture teaches, but it isn't making direct references to Scripture about fighting on our knees with arms lifted high, knowing the battle belongs to our sovereign God. Those things are true. Our battles do belong to God who is sovereign over everything, but it's not referencing Ephesians chapter 2, for instance. What I find in the modern church is that there's a lot of singing of spiritual songs, there's some hymns, but essentially there's no psalm singing. 
As on my time here at Grace Point, I've tried to make it a point to introduce some psalm singing because um, we don't have, our bulletin doesn't publish what the names of our songs are, right? Our next two songs after Battle Belongs this morning were Psalm 51. You might have been thinking, Rock of Ages has, a, has weird words to it this morning, right? Those words were the words of Psalm 51. We just set it to a different tune. And then our, our third song was based on Psalm 42 with some references that come thou fount in there as well. Um, right? But my main goal in worship here has been to introduce songs that lift up God as holy and, on our, and to focus ourselves on our reliance on Him. Right? Theological accuracy has been incredibly important to me as we sing songs to the Lord. Right? Some songs that we sing are deeper than others, and that's okay. But it is clear to me that we are to give ourselves fully in praise to our Lord and Savior, as that's what we'll be doing for eternity in heaven. Now, this morning, I didn't go into all the things that were prohibited from doing in Scripture, and I didn't go into all the implications of what it means if we follow the regulative principle. To some people, the regulative principle will sound restrictive, which can be off-putting. But I want to make it clear, there's a lot of liberty in those restrictions. Right? We're not commanded what passages of Scripture, or even how many to read each week. We're not commanded how we ought to be offering, or if our prayers should be written or given from the heart on the fly. We're not told how we should have this balance of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, how long or short these songs should be, or even what instrumentation is appropriate. But what we shouldn't be doing is worshiping God in the way that our hearts want. Just like we don't give people gifts that we ourselves want. When I was 16, I gave my mom a CD of the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. My mom likes the Beatles, but I was the bigger fan, to be real. And I'm pretty sure that that CD still lives in my car somewhere. So this gift from my mom, all 100% was a gift for myself. All right, I wasn't loving her well. I was loving myself well. Similarly, when we, love, when we worship God in the ways that we want to, we're not worshiping God, but we're worshiping ourselves. Right? We should be worshiping him in the ways that he has expressly commanded us to. Because right? anything that we do in our worship is a reflection of ourselves. So when God is high and holy in our lives, then he is high and holy in our worship. And when he is not on our pedestal, when he is second, third, fourth, fifth in our lives, it turns out he's second, third, fourth, fifth in our worship as well. So as we do things for our worship service, we need to do so with a thought of, does Scripture tell us to do this? And we should also be thinking about, is this worshiping God or is it worshiping man? It's anything we do to worship man is taking away from our worship of God. 
right? And the goal is to put God above all things in our worship. Let's keep him high and holy. In the late 90s, Christian artist Matt Redman's church found itself getting lost in what the purpose of worship was. For them, church had become a big worship concert. It had been about, become about the praise team, the loud music. So they had to buckle down and realign some of their values and make some tough decisions. What they decided to do was to remove their praise team and to remove their sound system. So even their pastor was just having to project with his voice and not with a microphone. They didn't have to have a team in the back running slides or running sound. I'm not suggesting that this is what Grace Point needs to do. I just want to make that clear. (laughs) Now what they found when they did this is that it started and it was uncomfortable and it was awkward because all they had was their own voices to lift up and to praise God together. But what happened after a few weeks and a few months was they found themselves united as a body of Christ followers. As they came back together and they started putting Jesus as the focus of their praise. So, I'd like to take a moment with you, without instruments, to just use our voices together to lift praise to God. I'm going to ask Joyce to pull up the doxology for us, and I'd like to ask you to please stand and join me now as we sing this one time through the doxology together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for making it clear to us what we should do to worship you, that you, are, you have not left us to our own whims to worship you as we desire, that you have told us what you want in, in your revealed word. Um, help us to keep you high and lifted in our minds, that you remain that first priority in our lives. Help us to keep our focus, our praise, our adoration on you and on you alone. We're thankful for you and everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.